everyone. Welcome to another episode of InsureTech Unscripted. Uh, Alisa Favi, uh, your host. Um, I'm super excited today about having TXUO, the general partner at FICO Ventures today with me. He's someone who's been involved with insurance for a while, who is a McKinsey, uh, involved with her insurance practice. And la- and he's been investing in InsureTech for a while. I mean, he invested in companies like Policy Genius, who, as you know, are one of some of the OGs uh, in the InsureTech space. So he brings a lot of unique perspective. Uh, into the podcast with a lot of learnings that obviously happened over the past few years. Uh, so let me start off with TX. Welcome to the podcast. And, you know, maybe you could tell us more about your background and, you know, where your interests are coming from and a little bit more yeah. about you. Thanks for having me, Ali. It's such a pleasure to be here today. So uh, just very quickly on my background, I was an entrepreneur turned VC. So started a very small bootstrap company. Uh, we are selling college textbooks online, of all things. So this was right out of college. We were very fortunate, ended up selling the company in 2006. Um, and at that point, I realized maybe I was a good entrepreneur, but didn't have the right business experience to scale a company. So spent a couple of years at McKinsey and was very fortunate to be part of their insure tech practice. So worked with a lot of clients like City, Prudential, AIG. Um, and through the experience kind of informed uh, how I wanted to invest my time when I became a VC later on. And InsureTech has definitely been a constant focus within our portfolio since day one. So we've been investing in InsureTech probably since 2013. It's about 10 years now. Very interesting. Um, so let me start off with, as someone who's been in InsureTech uh, since 2013, how do you see the evolution of InsureTech? Because I got involved with InsureTech beginning of 2016. And I have a lot of thoughts about how insurance is 2016 to 20, 22, 20, you know, like 19 to 2022. And even now, like if it's just a second wave or the third wave or whatever, but you've been in it much longer, right? So how, how do you see the phases of insurance for insurance evolution? Yeah, I think the first wave back in 2013 was similar to other financial product categories. I think it was just getting people comfortable with transacting and buying insurance online. I think insurance traditionally, as you know, the the average broker today is still 60 years old, kind of meets with you in person. So it's it's very uncommon and maybe not intuitive for people to be able to self-select their insurance policy. So that education process and discovery was a big thing in kind of V1.0 of InsurTech. So that was probably 2013 all the way to 2017. Uh, and I think after 2017, uh, consumers got more sophisticated, right? So the second wave, it goes beyond discovery to price comparison and finding what's the best policy for them. So I think that's the second wave between 2017 and 2021. And now I, I think with this market correction as a whole within tech, I, I love the new focus on profitability and strong unit economics. So I think we can dive into this a bit later, Ali, but... Uh, a lot of people are realizing that single line insurance products are very difficult to scale, that the unit economics might be pretty hard. That's why a lot of the traditional carriers, MGA, always have multi-line products that they sell. So a lot of the innovation, at least in the last couple of years, is around kind of product bundling, thinking about better targeting across different financial products. So how can you bundle maybe a mortgage product together with insurance together with maybe trust and will. So I think a lot of the innovation now happens in being able to use data and provide each individual the exact suite of financial products that they want. And insurance obviously serves as a very big category within the suite of products. Very interesting. So maybe we'll just jump into my favorite question always, which is what's some of, what's one or two of your most controversial opinions or ideas about insurance? Something that you feel like, you know, it's different than how the majority see insurance? 
Yeah, I, I, I actually think we, we need to go back and empower these offline brokers. I think instead of competing with them, I think we should empower them. I think what we've seen of late is a lot of these relationships with offline brokers are still very persistent, especially the older demographic. And uh, insurance is a lot about trust, right? It's one of these core products that a lot of people want um, dedicated advice. So instead of competing with them, we've actually invested in certain platforms like a company called Fair Street that helps Medicare agents kind of improve how they operate. And so we're not competing with them. We're not creating a new avenue for carriers to sell products. We're actually empowering or supercharging the existing channel. So that to me is like a very interesting category. And we want to do more investments in similar spaces. So I wonder, because I think about this all the time. When I was thinking about Kovu, as, as you we spoke about this briefly, but I'm very passionate about the distribution space because I believe transformation of insurance starts with transforming distribution. And mm -hmm. I found how do we advise people, guide them, educate them uh, to make the correct decisions? That's at least to me like a, the, the right way to start with distribution uh, transformation of insurance. But when I think about distribution channels, um, there's a huge controversy around embedded versus brokered model, or you know, between I would say the hottest topics now. <laughs> I know you we're talking a little bit more about how insurance get involved and the idea of bundling with like financial products and all that, which sounds more like embedded. And to me, that's a little bit different than like empowering brokers. So how do you see, how, how do you like navigate this? Like the, the difference between like, is insurance going to be more focused on bundling or is it going to be more focused on like empowering the traditional agency channel and involving them? Yeah, I think it's a bit of everything. Maybe maybe I'll break that down into three different parts. So I think embedded is very interesting. And maybe a controversial view I have is that everyone wants to be an embedded insurance company. Like, let's sell insurance. But I don't think a lot of companies have the right data, right? So ultimately, if you want to become an embedded insurance company, where you can actually capture value if you're willing to underwrite some of the risk yourself. I think if you're just going to distribute these policies, you're no better than an affiliate model. So that's something that has been tried and tested in the past. I think if you look at companies, uh, for example, maybe I'll, I'll name a company called Tint.ai. So Tint.ai works in marketplaces like uh, rental car marketplaces like Turo, where there's actually a lot of data that they're collecting about individual drivers and their driving records and experience. And there, I think that's a unique advantage for right? beyond kind of what the insurance carriers publicly see. You have a lot of granular data that will inform you of how to better price the policy. So in that case, I think it's very interesting for an embedded insurance play, whereas in other cases where the data might be more sparse, say you're like a middleman transactor where you actually don't capture um, granular level transaction data, then that, that case, I think there's less of a wedge in or there's a, less of a long-term moat for you to be able to better price risk within that. So that's the embedded category. I think that's pretty interesting. Um, I think the the other one that's uh, pretty interesting is we talked about being em uh, empowering existing brokers or existing channels. I think there are two categories, so I break them down. One is like a pure play, let's provide more SaaS tooling to these existing channels. The other is like, Allowing more distribution, uh, we recently invested in a company called OutMarket that helps a lot of carriers identify good distribution partners. So they identify brokers that the carrier currently doesn't work with or MGS that are wholesalers that the carrier doesn't work with today. 
but could be very strategic given the carrier's footprint or the carrier's intent to expand their coverage in certain regions. So I think this model of like a AI co-pilot is becoming very interesting when you think about emp empowering people within the ecosystem. Right? Interesting. So let's just flash forward to like, let's say 20 years from now. I know it's a little bit of a stretch, but I just wonder like, how do you see the future? Like, do you, just distribution wise, um, do you see it as a market in 20 years that is more dominated by, I don't know, like AI enabled brokers or like a model where insurance is taking a bad backseat of all these big commercial brands and is more just bundled into distribution? Like, I don't know, you buy your car insurance from Toyota versus, you know, like your broker. I, I really hope that I think with the wealth of data and the cost of creating these AI systems going down a lot, that I, I think the analogy you gave about, hey, you buy your Toyota and then, yeah, I present you with your, your car insurance and then I get your physical address because I'm taking down your, your, your driver's license and your details and I can offer you a policy because now I capture data about kind of where you live and kind of what you do for a living and kind of your lifestyle trends. So, I think all of that is going to be the future. I don't think that's something we get to in the next three to five years. It's probably going to be 15 to 20. The other thing which I think it's going to be interesting is that given a lot of the, the insurance education can be automated, that you can embed insurance within other financial products. So instead of just a car dealership, you, you walk into a bank, you open a bank account, maybe it could be online now an online account and at the same time they ask you a few questions that can prompt you to buy insurance as well so i think we see the bundling of products not just with uh, non-financial players but also with other financial products so i'll tell you my thesis and i want you to basically correct me and say like i'll you, you sure <laughs> sure um i've thought about this quite a bit and there's two versions of the features that I could see. One version is that you have someone who's your risk advisor that understands the risk you're responsible for and tells you how to predict your downside. And the other one is that the one that you mentioned, which is you buy a car and then the car manufacturer says, I don't know, let's say if, I mean, if you have autonomous cars, then you're not driving. So it's not your liability or risk. It's the car's liability and risk. And in that case, they should provide insurance, not you. But if it's your risk, then I guess, the risk advisor makes more sense to me than so. I mean, we always talk about the idea of bundling, but I, I wonder why shouldn't the idea of bundling come from this angle, which is like a holistic risk advisor, as opposed to bundling life insurance with mortgage or bundling, um, I don't know, like auto with the car manufacturer. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I, I like the idea of a holistic kind of risk advisor to help you with like your entire life and your like everything else. I, I do think that the one thing has to change and maybe this is not just insurance, but other financial products that everyone's incentivized to get you to buy more financial products. So how do you take that away? I think if a financial advisor sells you more insurance or you, you take a higher level of coverage, they ultimately make more commissions. So as we think about the risk model, like I think we need to change kind of the commission structures or how we think about compensating people or distribute insurance so that the end consumer gets what's right for them, not what's most expensive for them. So we build an AI risk advisor because that was my original thesis. And the idea was a holistic, unbiased and transparent advisor. The idea that I have had at least as it was that it's supposed to be algorithmic. So if it's algorithmic and it doesn't have a human intervention and it's kind of like open source, so you know like what is recommended to what, that should solve the issue. Because the combination that I liked the most was that 
the AI generates the advice, and then the human does the handholding for explaining it. Because the explanation, I don't think AI, I don't know, AI should be there eventually, but people still want that trust and human touch and human handholding when it comes to like these kind of complex products, uh, which I think might be able to solve that to kind of provide some of that transparency and some of that unbiased incentive into the mix. Yep, I, I I think that's that's super interesting. Maybe one kind of early innovation in this space is that we found that some of these early um, shopping tools for insurance uh, have taken off, like platforms like Safe Butler. I think what's interesting is that I feel the incentives there are more aligned with the consumer. So I like it that you're running an algorithmic model in this case, where you take away the biases and you're recommending what's best for the customer. So I, I think maybe that's that's a happy medium or a compromise that we can strike, right? Because a pure shopping tool, again, you don't want to just get the cheapest insurance policy. You want what's best for you, but you also don't want to like overcommit to policies that you don't need. So I think something in between is kind of what you're building is definitely going to be the future for how people should be thinking about insurance. Yeah. And of course, the biggest issue here is that people's relationship with risk is very complicated. I <laughs> think people are wired to buy certain policies, which is auto, home, and life, maybe to some extent. And they're not wired to buy other policies like disability insurance or, you know, all this stuff that they're not used to buying and convincing them to buy something that they're not generally wired to buy. It's a very weird dynamic because it's not a logical discussion. It's like when I tell someone that you have a 25% chance of having some sort of disability in your life, they're like, okay, so there's a 75% chance nothing's going to happen to me. And that's like how a lot of people treat it versus, yeah, but that's like the whole point of insurance is like, we're talking about like low frequency, high severity items, and that's what insurance is for. So I think that was like the biggest challenge we ran into. And that's why I thought like the human advisor still needed to kind of like massage everything on top of like unbiased recommendation from a from an intelligent system. Yeah. I, I think the the other thing too that will be interesting is that I think there'll be more product innovation uh on the the insurance side. I, I think one example, Ali, I know you and I have had offline conversations about this, but I think the whole topic of um, insurance for AI, I think uh, it's going to be very interesting. I think a lot of people are talking about AI for insurance, but I think the opposite is very interesting. If you think about certain categories, if I'm a medical practitioner, now I'm relying on AI to read mammograms for me, or if I'm a lawyer and using AI to draft um, uh, draft letters for me to some of my clients, what if there's a mistake though? Is this covered by my general liability policy or do I need something additional in AI? So I, I think this is a very interesting product innovation that will need to exist at least in the coming years. So I know tech ENO has existed, which is basically, mm -hmm. right? It's like you develop a tech and you're covering its errors and emissions. Uh, I think this is just a more complicated tech ENO. And the question is, because the insurance companies who write tech ENO are writing these tech ENOs, and I don't think they have the authority models to do a better job with writing it. So yes. the biggest losers in the space are like when insurance companies write this and then realize, shit, like that's like a lot of ENO. Yeah. Uh, so I think the so from a customer lens, I feel like the products are out there as tech ENO. From an insurance company lens, I feel like they need to just be adapting much quicker now with all these new systems. Uh, to give you an example, like. Our AI, we have shown that it could pass the licensing test, like mm -hmm. with 5% accuracy or whatever. And we haven't even spent a lot of time on it like to improve it. So for me, I asked the question from a few commissioners and like the, the regulatory space and insurance is like, look, this, this is as good as like a licensed agent. Like, so what? Like, can we 
start using it like a license agent or how would that work? And obviously, I don't think the world is equipped to be able to answer these kind of questions. And I feel like there's going to be more regulations coming into it. There's going to be more learnings. But um, I think the foundation is for sure there. Um, uh, but it should be super exciting uh, what comes out. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a lot of insurance companies, especially the larger ones, think about where they want to spend money on future development. I, I think one huge benefit with AI is I hope that a lot of the OPEX costs, whether it's like customer service, where, whether it's billing, all of that should be streamlined away. And a lot of the focus should be on future product innovation or really like understanding like, hey, how do we actually tailor our policies to each individual? Maybe the the other the other pipe dream I have is that even though everyone tells you now you get a personalized quote for insurance, you're still bucketed into a few categories. They're placing you, they're checking a few boxes. So you're within this certain age group, 40 to 55. You live in these cities or zip codes and we'll give you the policy, but it's not down to the individual level. And sometimes I think insurance companies also don't have a holistic view of, like, I think the whole idea of a risk advisor is pretty interesting. Like if you're covered with maybe some of your company policies, maybe your personal insurance policy doesn't need to be that high. Um, so I, I think this understanding of a common database that's shared across all insurance companies, but at the same time remains anonymous, might be super helpful in helping the end consumer get better price policies. Makes sense. So let me ask you this. What do you think uh, investors got wrong over the past few years? And then I'm just so you know, like where I'm trying to go with this conversation is after it's going to be like, what do you think investors are getting wrong now? And then I'm going to ask you about what insurance companies are getting wrong. So let's start with what investors and insurance companies to some extent have got wrong before. Yeah, I think they overestimated the lifetime value of each customer and the number of additional products they could upsell to each consumer. I think there was a lot of uh, confidence, maybe some cases blind confidence that, hey, we start with one product, we can upsell you three other products. And a lot of the VC dollars that flowed into the space, and again, we are guilty as charged to here at Pika, we've done the same thing, that a lot of the assumptions you're making on how profitable each business could be were based on these assumptions that don't hold. So I think the other assumption was that customer acquisition costs for these people would hold constant at scale, which is not true. I think insurance is just like every other financial services vertical where at once you get to a certain amount of scale, the cost of acquisition actually increases a lot so that you need that buffer from day one in order for you to find a viable product at scale. So that's what I think both carriers as well as insurtechs as well as VCs have gotten wrong over the last couple of years. And a lot of it, I think, wasn't uncovered till we had the market correction where people started to pay attention. Hey, there's no more free $50 million lying around for your next round. Like we really need to focus on margins instead of just focusing on top line revenue growth. So before that it was just top line revenue growth at every expense, right? Which is not the case anymore. And let me ask you this. Do you feel like these models, the market, because like, uh, I'm not going to mention any names, but a lot of people say like these market corrections, it was more about like the, like uh, just the price multiples. But the question is that, do you feel these companies can save themselves or do you feel like they're fundamentally flawed businesses? I think a lot of them are fundamentally challenged businesses as standalone entities. So I think they would need to merge with another entity to get to that exponential scale and scale, not just in terms of revenues, but back office footprint. For example, if you combine two of these companies, we could combine operations where you could streamline probably 50% of the cost. 
So I think in order for some of these uh, players to succeed, we will need to see drastic consolidation in this market, which hasn't happened yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm predicting that it will in the next one or two years. When you say these players were all talking about like digital MGA slash carriers, right? Like that's the yes, thing. yes, that's and right. Talking about consolidation, is it between them and other digital carriers, or is it going to be more between them and I don't know, like uh, traditional carriers? Yeah, it, it it could be it could be traditional carriers too. I think if there's a very complementary footprint, say they have uh, a stronghold in certain product lines, then I could see kind of that. I see vertical integration being very helpful, but I think horizontal integration, which is what we were talking about initially, I think that that is also a very viable path in order to create kind of a a much a much bigger company. Makes sense. And what do you think people are still getting wrong now versus before? I think where what people are still getting wrong is like a lot of investors are still funding single line insurance products. And I just don't think that single line insurance products uh, scale very well. I think these are likely going to be, uh, we, you're going to tap out at, I would say, like 50, 100 million in revenues. And then finding that kind of second chapter in your playbook is going to be extremely difficult. So I think I think for from day one, a lot of people are still not focused on the right business models or not thinking about, hey, instead of building one single product, how can I build a suite of products that will serve the end customer? So I think where they get things wrong is they, they instead of being customer-led in their product discovery, they're just being led by a single line of product. I think you really need to think about the customer demographic you're serving from day one and understand like, hey, what else can I sell this specific customer? I think that's a more interesting question to answer, but a lot of insure tech companies at the seed stage are still not focused on that. The challenge that I see with that is that I just feel like um, the model of selling multiple products at the same time in the online channel doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And even from an embedded model doesn't work. I, well, I, I mean, love, love to chat more though. What, what, are, what are examples, some examples you've seen that haven't worked? Because I, I think we, we actually think the opposite where some of these examples we think would, would actually I feel work like at scale. I mean, I spend a lot of time with customers trying to understand how they work. I mean, I, I put customers in different categories, but one category is of people who buy online. Like, mm-hmm. like let's talk about three different channels. One is B2C. So imagine like um, someone like um, Branch who does home and auto together. Um, I don't know if I'm a big fan of like a direct B2C play to go to someone and say, day one, bundle your home and auto with me directly. I just feel like the person who's shopping online typically is looking for one policy. And mm-hmm. then try to sell them to multiple things at the same time, it's that much harder. Uh, just from a high-intent customer that you'll find online. If I'm talking about a, I don't know, like a bank customer or like let's say a financial product like eight points or something that I'm trying to sell them all. Again, like these are hard conversions as they are for single line and high intention. Mm-hmm. And- convert them in multiple policies at the same time is even harder. And if you just sell them on one policy, trying to bundle a few other things after is also very hard because most of these customers you have very low engagement with and there's not much. That's what that's one of the reasons I got into the agency space anyway because I felt like in the agency space, the renewals are really where we want to go after people for bundling because you basically bring them in on a single line and then you have that relationship with them that is engaged and you have that personal relationship with them as opposed to like an acorns relationship or banking relationship or something. 
And that's what you use to cross sell. At least that's my thesis. I don't know if I'm getting it right or wrong, but um, that's how I feel. I, I definitely can see your angle. I think what I mean, maybe to piggyback on your example, like maybe auto and home, it's it's not maybe naturally like a complementary product unless you bring in maybe a third product, like an umbrella product. And you can say like, if you get these two from us, your umbrella premium goes down. So I, I think instead of selling them three policies at once, I think there's a short term opportunity to resell policy. So getting them to, to opt out of the current policy and pick something else in the short term. And I think the other thing that's challenged about selling multiple products is the underwriting timelines are not consistent. So, and, and maybe that beckons another challenge we have in today's insurance industry. So I think if you think about life insurance, it's so archaic that a lot of it still requires us getting a blood test and everything. Well, if you think about it, like hey, most of us have gone for a medical checkup within the last one or two years, right? So I think we can rely on the data. And I think a lot of us uh, subscribe to online platforms, like one one medical for an example. So I guess why isn't there more of a data integration between this where I can get an instant policy? So I think a lot of the challenges is also the data and switch, right? You come back with a with a very low premium number and then two weeks later, they come up with certain exclusions. So like, hey, I can't do this. I think being upfront at the start and getting pricing right and underwriting period shorter is going to be like the winning formula. But I don't really think we've cracked the code yet. Yeah. And why do you think investors are still finding single line insurance products? Like, is there like, a, they haven't learned the lesson or they're betting on a certain thing that, uh, what are they betting on? That they feel like in, in, Insurance is such a, such a big category. So a lot of people think that the TAM, even with single line products is big enough. Um, so I think a lot of them are focused on the TAM. And I think the second thing is they're focused on people who have had experience in the space as corporate executives and like, hey, we know the space inside out. We have all the right relationships. Yes, you're going to get the right distribution channels, but fundamentally, are you building a business that works? So I think as they think about supply, they love investing in people who have all the right relationships to all the carers and MGAs. But I think that still that consumer acquisition flywheel, as we talked about, is something that is still very hard to fix. And another thing that I wonder about is that before, when you think about Root or Lemonade, uh, people were basically giving SaaS multiples on premium. Mm -hmm. They counted revenue, premium, like revenue, and yeah. like a ninety SaaS multiple on like the low margin, unprofitable premium. Uh, I just saw the announcement from Kin Insurance that mm -hmm. they are unicorn now. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, what are the multiples now for like a single line NGR carrier as opposed to before? Yeah, it, it's it's much, much lower. So maybe a lot of the background is that these, these first batch of companies like Root and Lemonade, as you mentioned, these were like, I think the first in 10, 20 years of a new insurance company uh, coming on the public market. So a lot of, I think, less informed public market investors this is like the retail crowd they didn't really understand the difference between premiums and like your regular SaaS multiple so i think revenues is like a small fraction of premiums as everyone finally understood so uh i think as you look at the newer companies a lot of these new companies are going to be valued off kind of net revenue multiples which is then going to be more consistent with SaaS multiples but if you look at like top line kind of revenue multiples i can't see anyone trading for more than like at three four x kind of kind of premiums which is which is sounds crazy which is still very high in my opinion but i think everything's going to be focused back on like bottom line revenue numbers yeah 
But even the bottom line revenue number is not a SaaS margin business. It's still like, you know, you have a huge customer service and all that kind of stuff. So I would assume they're still running at 30, 40% margin. And if they carry any risk, they have like huge unprofitability issues now with. Mm-hmm. So it's still interesting. But I mean, Kim being insured to uh, Unicorn, I mean, props to them in this market and in that category. So I think I was mm-hmm. to hear that news. Uh, but let's see. Uh, I, I wonder what, like, what are the multiples on them? So you spoke a little bit about like areas of insurtech that you're excited about. One of them was the idea of insuring AI, which is a very new trend. Anything else that you're super excited about these days? I, I think I think we're we're very excited again. We we've I think for the last I would say the last five years, a lot of people have focused on more consumer innovation within insurance. I think we are now more ex- more excited about helping a lot of the existing players large wholesalers and carriers fix their back office operations, which is something very interesting. I, I think one big innovation, again, not, not to kind of go back to AI again, but I think in the past, we were only able to leverage RPA technology. So a lot of the innovation was with regards to like, hey, we can ingest data faster and process data faster. So we can ingest a PDF form and, okay, spit out the data into a database. But now I, I think we call it smart processing or smart contextualization where not only can you capture the data, the data can be used to inform other decisions. And this is only kind of made possible more recently with AI. So a lot of this information that we're pretty excited about, like the example I, I told you, we invested in this company called OutMarket. That's a, it's a co-pilot for a lot of carriers and wholesalers to improve their distribution reach by finding existing brokers that could actually help them and could be additive to their current portfolio. So I think that's going to be pretty interesting. So the areas of focus for us is a lot, I would say, like back office, a lot of um, distribution automation, a, le- a lot of customer service op- automation, um, a lot of receivables automation. That's all pretty interesting to us today. And what are some of the trends that you feel like now have a huge impact on insurance, just outside of the insurance space that people should be aware of? And you expect like a big impact on insurance for insurance? Yeah, I, I think I think a, a a lot of the the trends in that that are happening more on the macro level are going to make uh, have an impact on insurance as well, right? I think if you think about uh, the cost of capital for all businesses, it's gone it's gone up a lot. So I think as you think about the whole underwriting and the MGA model, I think kind of people who are sitting in the wrong part of the stack are going to get compressed as well. Um, I think the the other thing that that's going to affect the insurance industry a, a lot too is just um, now that there's more data about understanding premiums, a lot of the carriers are quickly finding unprofitable markets. I mean, I'm sure you know this, but State Farm kind of moved out of California as well uh, for their home insurance. They're realizing like, hey, all these policies that we underwrote, now we have data on it. They're like, gee, not that profitable, especially with all the fire risks that now we can predict. I think before that, a lot of the wildfire risk was not really factored into these models. So I think with the data, a lot of the carriers are getting a lot smarter so um, I think there's going to be kind of, I would say, a more variation in pricing, which is going to affect the insurance industry. We're not going to see a homogeneous kind of like setup for most of these product lines. We're going to see very big variability. And I think a lot of uh, underlying kind of risk takers within the space, people underwriting the risk, will, are going to ask more questions for them to price the policies, right? So I think that's going to be the evolution of insurance. And who do you think are going to be the biggest winners? in this, when you think about the future of insurance and all these trends and changes and so on, we're going to be the biggest. Yeah, 
I think people who can get to scale, and I, I know it's a cop-out, but I really like the roll-up model in insurance. I think that's very, very interesting. So I think uh, that there's a group called XPT Insurance, which is out in New York. So they've been buying a lot of specialty wholesalers, and this is more traditional kind of offline, but they've done extremely well. I think what, what you realize is that the, the back office operations and the distributions are, are very similar across different types of businesses, but none of them have ever gotten to scale because insurance is still a very outside of the top kind of few carriers, wholesalers and MGA is still a very, very fragmented market. So I think this whole strategy of a roll-up play in insurance, it's, it's going to be a very interesting one. Very cool. Um, that's it for most of my questions. I mean, I asked about uh, the trends and so on. Um, I don't know if you have anything else that you want to share or add that we haven't covered. No, this this is super fun, Ali. I had a lot of fun chatting about insurance, and I, I know a lot of uh, different trends have happened over the last two years, but still very excited about the future of insurance. Perfect. Uh, no, well, so thank you so much uh, for you know sharing all your insights, and uh, thank you everyone for listening. Um, TX, it was great having you on the podcast. Thank you again, Ali. All right, thanks.